Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to John chapter 3. We'll look at the text is printed in the bulletin also for you on the next page, but John 3 verses 22 through 36. So this week, again, is the, uh, it's the final Sunday in the church calendar. It's, um, it's the Sunday known as the Feast of Christ the King. It's looking ahead to the second coming of the Lord, um, to the time when He returns, bringing His kingdom with Him in all of its fullness, and uh, our relationship with Him then will be consummated with um, what is described in the Scripture as a cosmic royal wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. So um, that's what this Sunday represents in the church calendar. It's the end, which happens to be a new beginning. But, um, but next week, we'll look at Advent. Um, we'll actually take a pretty traditional track with Advent and um, have an Advent wreath with candles and work our way through the significance of those candles, uh, kind of historic, traditional uh, significance of those things, um, maybe even geared a little bit more toward uh, the kids than usual, uh, something to be accessible to them, and then um, probably I'm, I'm going to try really hard to develop some sort of uh, little plan or series of readings for you to use in your homes with your families, um, something where, you know, you can read it at dinner time and light your own um, Advent candle if you have a wreath or whatever. Um, do that on your own as, you, as we work through the season together. So uh, that begins next week. So this week... <clears throat> Um, it, you know, we're looking at the end of John 3. After Advent in the new year, we'll, we'll take up again John's gospel starting in John 4. But this week, uh, we'll see John the Baptist's famous line, he must increase, with regard, you know, with reference to Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. Uh, I discovered this week, actually, it's, it's pretty appropriate as we consider the church calendar as we're uh, approaching Advent. Um, to think about this passage, Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said uh, that the, the early church selected dates for the church calendar to celebrate the births of, obviously, Jesus, December 24th, the early church uh, said that it's not necessarily his birthday, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a day where we're going to symbolically look at the incarnation of Jesus, uh, look at his birth but also John the Baptist's birthday. John the Baptist's birthday is in the church calendar. Uh, John the Baptist, the church calendar date for his birth, again, probably not the actual date of his birth, but uh, for us symbolically to consider, is uh, June 24th. June 24th, and then Jesus on December 24th. And these are near the solstices, and that's kind of the main point, that these are near the solstices because after John's birthday, the days get shorter and the light decreases. And then after Christ's birthday, the light increases. The days get longer. Um, church calendar is not inspired. That's not uh, something that we have, uh, you know, in the scriptures given to us to, to celebrate. But it is a way for the church to structure our life together around the central truths of the gospel. This one being, he must increase, I must decrease. All right. So whether you like to observe the church calendar or not, that's fine. That's, that's up to you, but, um, but you should let this be a constant reality for your life. This should be the arc of your life. Jesus Christ must increase, and I must decrease. That's what we'll talk about this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. 
Father, we're glad to have Your Word. It reveals a lot about who we are. A lot of that is painful, but the more important thing is that it reveals to us who You are, who Your Son is, how we can have relationship with You, how we can live with You, how the world is supposed to be and the trajectory that the world is on and how it will be again because of Your grace at the second coming of Christ. We, um, we're happy to sit under Your Word. We pray that You would overcome any obstacles in our hearts to receiving Your Word with faith this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> After this, Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside, and He remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, and he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so between the baptism of Jesus Christ, and that's what's being referred to here when, the, when uh, John's disciples say, look, the guy who was with you, um, to whom you bore witness, so that's at, at the time when John actually baptized Jesus, uh, between the baptism of Jesus Christ and then John's imprisonment, which we have reference here, uh, reference to here in our passage, there was some ministry overlap, <clears throat> right? So John and Jesus had parallel ministries. There was a time when, in which they were both, uh, it says, uh, baptizing, right? This ministry for both of them was characterized by actually pre-Christian baptism. So just because the word baptism shows up in the Bible doesn't mean it's what we understand by, uh, by the word baptism now. Um, but Christian baptism, Christian baptism takes place after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, when the church baptizes in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus himself baptizes or anoints with his Holy Spirit. So that's Christian baptism. But this baptism that John and Jesus, or probably actually uh, Jesus' disciples, uh, as Jesus was overseeing them in ministry, probably Jesus' disciples were baptizing, but the, the baptism that John and they were administering 
was a cleansing, a washing. That's one of the words you see in the Old Testament for baptisms, washings, purifications, right? So this was a a purification that was symbolic of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So it kind of highlights one of the aspects of the fullness of Christian baptism now as we understand it. This is not going to be a sermon on baptism. So, um, you know, all the technical theological stuff. That's not what this is going to be about. The significance of baptism has always been a point for theological debate, and apparently it was then there too, because John's disciples come up to him uh, asking him questions. They, they were having a debate with a Jew about purification this, regarding baptism, right? So, but that's actually not the main reason why John brings it up here, so that's why we're not going to spend a ton of time on it. John brings it up in his gospel here as the context or the setting for a pretty significant dynamic that exists uh, for people who are doing Christian ministry. People who are, um, when I say doing Christian ministry, everybody thinks, well, maybe I'm the only one in the room that's doing Christian ministry because I'm a minister. But, um, but Christian ministry is something that all disciples are supposed to be engaged in as members of uh, God's household and as members of Christ's kingdom. Uh, this is the way that we're all supposed to think about our life together and our life in the world uh, is, is ministry, right? It's, it's ministering the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel to others. So it, it's relevant to all of us, but th- there's a significant dynamic for people doing Christian ministry in, uh, in this passage, and that's why John brings up the, the context being uh, this debate about purification. So in verse 26, you know, it says that, that John's disciples and a Jew were engaged in a discussion or debate, they're having a conversation or a theological debate about, about uh, purification and baptism, but they don't come to, to John, they don't come to John the Baptist to ask him a question about purification. Right? That's the context, but the, the question is, they're not asking for a resolution of their theological questions about baptism. The thing that they've seen now is that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing over there on the other side of the river, right? They're they're baptizing over there. They've seen his parallel ministry, and in fact, they've had some of their own friends. Some of John the Baptist's disciples left and followed Jesus, and now is Jesus' disciples. Andrew and John probably are the ones that are mentioned earlier in John's gospel. Uh, and remember, just for sake of clarity, John the Baptist and John the gospel writer or John the evangelist are different people. John the Baptist and John the evangelist or John the apostle um, they're different people, so sorry if that's confusing. Um, but, but John, uh, the apostle, the evangelist, was one of these guys who used to follow John the Baptist, and he went over to, to Jesus, right? And so he's doing ministry over there. They see that, these, these, uh, these followers of John the Baptist, they, they see this. They see these people leave John the Baptist and start following Jesus themselves, and they're feeling kind of snubbed. They're, they're feeling underappreciated, maybe even a little threatened by the competition, so to speak. Right? They're giving expression to some frustration. They're, they're complaining to John the Baptist. And it's the kind of thing you expect to hear from, like, loyal customers at a, uh, the old mom-and-pop corner store when a big box store goes in across the street, the kind of complaining you expect to see in that situation. But we've got to apply a different paradigm than, uh, than comp- competitive, uh, than the competition paradigm when it comes to Jesus and ministry. And John the Baptist, actually, he knows that. He, 
he gently corrects his disciples about this. He redirects them. He basically reminds them that his whole life and ministry, from beginning to end, his whole life and ministry have been explicitly Christ-centered, have been a, a concentrated, deliberate, actually inspired effort, inspired by God himself. John the Baptist has been called by God to connect people to Jesus. That's the reason why he's alive. That's the reason why he's doing what he's doing, is to connect people to Jesus. And when people listen to John the Baptist, and they do what he says and run to embrace Jesus, then um, that's what he was born for. That's That's the fulfillment of his purpose and his desire, and nothing could bring him greater joy, he says. He says in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. So basically with that, he's saying, I'm happy. I'm content. I'm thankful because God has given me the ministry of pointing people to Jesus and because God has given all these people to Jesus, these people who are going to him, right? And so these things are happening. My life And what's happening here with our parallel ministries and these people going to Jesus instead of coming to see me again? These things are happening because of a gracious God in heaven. God's the one making these things happen, and that's good. That's good, and I'm thankful, right? You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. This was emphatic earlier in John's gospel that John the Baptist was saying, I'm not the Christ, right? Remember, just I'm not the Christ. I've been sent to prepare the way for him, to point people to him, but I'm not the Christ. I'm not the big deal here. You can bear me witness. You remember I said that, right? If you'd been listening to how I've exalted Jesus this whole time, you would see there's no tension here. There's no competition. I'm not jealous of Jesus because people are going to him. I've been trying to get people to do that all along. That's been the point of my ministry. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So uh, Raymond Brown is a commentator on this passage. He says, in Jewish weddings, the bridegroom came with his friends to the bride's house to take her to his home. His best friend had been standing guard at the bride's house to make sure that no one entered before he came. As the friend, the Baptist hears the bridegroom coming to claim his bride and rejoices that he can withdraw into the background. Imagine the joy. You've probably been part of a wedding. You've probably been to a wedding. and The wedding party is a big, happy bunch of people who are celebrating the fact that the bride and the bridegroom are now finally coming together. They're going to have union. And this thing isn't about me. I'm the best man, but it's not about me. It's about my friend here who's the bridegroom. And I'm excited because of that. I'm not, I'm not trying to steal his glory. I'm not upset about him having the glory for this occasion, right? So the Baptist, John the Baptist, isn't jealous of Christ. He's jealous for Christ. He's jealous for Christ, and he's jealous for the bride. So uh, Paul actually uses this same kind of language in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where he's talking to the church in Corinth, the church, and he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, to Christ, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. I'm jealous for your relationship, 
right? So the minister says, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to be united to Jesus. I'm excited about that. I'm jealous for that relationship. I'm not jealous of it, right? Um, so this jealousy for the marriage, the union of Christ and the church, the marriage of the divine bridegroom to his bride, the church, that's why, that's why John the Baptist can celebrate, he can celebrate the exaltation of Christ. He's fading into the background. That's totally great. Because I want to see this. I want to see people coming to Jesus. And I can celebrate that. My joy is now complete. He must increase. He must. But I must decrease. That's not false modesty. That's not self-pity. It's not uh, a dangerous lack of self-respect. It's inevitable that Jesus Christ will be exalted. It's inevitable. He must increase. He's going to increase. He's going to become the desire of nations. He's going to become the very center of the cosmos. He's going to become the high king over heaven and earth itself. It's going to happen. He must increase. And, and the, as I retreat into the periphery of attention and don't stand at the center of the universe anymore, that just means my deep satisfaction with God's plan, which is Jesus. God's plan is Jesus. He's the center of the universe. So um, Frederick Bruner, another commentator, says that the great desire of authentic Christian ministry is the increase of Christ in the heart's of one's parishioners, one's neighbors, and oneself. It is possible to be so consumed with Christ's increase that one can actually be content to be less significant oneself. I imagine if you're anything like me, you struggle with that. If that, if that characterizes authentic Christian ministry, then what is it that I'm doing? because I have a real problem with Christ being exalted and myself being decreasing, retreating to the periphery of attention. If you're anything like me, you struggle to maintain a vision like John the Baptist has here, which he gently corrects his disciples about. It probably seems mostly foreign to your experience. I think this, this passage has universal significance for us, but we can see the dynamics of it really clearly with regard to ministers like John the Baptist or myself. So uh, let me apply this to myself and see how it connects with you. Um, I'm instinctively more like the Baptist's disciples here, instinctively. This is what I'm like by nature, more like the Baptist's disciples who are getting upset that Jesus is attracting such large crowds and is drawing them away from what we're doing over here. Right? I, I get, I'm concerned with how ministry reflects on me. I'm concerned with my reputation I'm concerned, I, I compare myself to other ministers and our church to other churches as if we're in competition. That's a, it's kind of an unspoken assumption in my heart. I'm actually secretly motivated in ministry by a desire to hear praise, to consume your praises for myself. That's, that's what's going on inside of me, instinctively. There's a little bit of resentment, and there's a little bit, there's a piece of me that dies every time I actually succeed in redirecting your attention to Jesus. There's a little piece of me that dies. 
And I discovered how much this is true of me when I went on sabbatical this summer. Um, I realized how pervasive this is in my heart and in my conversations. By nature, I'm obsessed with the, the opinions of other people. And my interactions are largely characterized then by attempts to impress other people. And that means you. And that means lots of my conversations with you have been at least partially, at least with mixed motives, driven by the desire to impress you so I can imagine that you're impressed with me. Right? And that means stress. Living that way means stress. Living that way means anxiety. Living that way means I've got to perform. And it means jealousy when it appears like others are performing better, when others are doing it right and I'm doing it wrong, or they're getting the praise and I'm not. Right? There's a lot of stuff messed up with that dynamic. <laughs> um, if ministry is about me, as I secretly wish it were, then I've got to be the best, I've got to outdo all rivals, and I've got to ignore the fact that I'm rivaling Jesus himself as the center of people's attention. That's, that's got to happen. And before, um, this is a scandal. This, in some sense, you should be scandalized by this, but before you get scandalized by it, by uh, my candor about that, you should get candid with yourself and tell me that you don't feel the same way. That you don't try to impress other people with your particular insights about Christ, about theology, that you're not actually looking to attract attention to yourself by the way that you serve in this way or that in the church or the way you serve other people in the name of Christ. We all have, at best, mixed motives about Christian ministry. Every single one of us who are called to Christian ministry, and that's everybody in the church, we all have mixed motives, at best, about Christian service, whether we at some level enjoy having others think well of us or we just want to be able to feel good about ourselves and keep on thinking about ourselves. This stuff happens inside of us instinctively. We don't have to try. It just happens. We're rivaling Christ for the honor of being the bridegroom, being the center of attention. But he's the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. And as we point others to him in ministry, we're just the friend of the groom. And, and instead of letting resentment characterize that, we actually really can let delight characterize that. It actually can be delightful for us to retreat to the periphery, to decrease, while he increases. Um, Bono, U2, has a good song, Magnificent. He says, I was born, I was born to sing for you. I didn't have a choice but to lift you up and sing whatever song you wanted me to. I give you back my voice from the womb, my first cry. It was a joyful noise. Joyful. In some sense, it had to be extracted from me. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> but, but it's a joyful noise to sing for you, and I was born for that reason. I was born for it. That fullness of joy comes as we meditate on who Jesus really is, as we celebrate him for ourselves, as we realize that I'm part of the bride, and I get the privilege of unity with Jesus Christ, the high king of the universe. I get the privilege of that because of his grace. Even me, even somebody like me who would steal his glory and, and hog the limelight and distract attention away from him and put it on myself and seek to do that while talking about him. Even somebody like me, 
I'm part of the bride. He loves me. He gave his life for me. And as you celebrate him and meditate on who he really is, that, that can mean the fullness of joy as he, as he increases and as you decrease. All right? Uh, it's a bit unclear whether um, the, the, the last main paragraph of our text, uh, verses 31 to 36, it's a, it's a little unclear whether it's the meditation of John the Baptist as he's continuing to speak with his disciples um, or whether it's, it's John the Evangelist, the gospel writer, whether it's his uh, meditation on Jesus, the English Standard Version and the way that it's printed, um, it, it doesn't have quotes around that part. So the assumption of the translators of the English Standard Version is that, that verses uh, 31 through 36 are not actually a continuation of John the Baptist's uh, final sermon. But uh, whatever it is, whether it's John the Baptist or John the Evangelist, it's given to, to us to dwell on who Jesus is because that's what we need. That's what we all need is to dwell on who Jesus is, on the glorious reality of Christ so that our thoughts and our affections might be reordered and transformed and purified. Right? And I, I lean toward actually understanding this section as the continuing testimony of John the Baptist. This is like his final sermon and he's given it all he's got um, <clears throat> and, because there's no clear marker in the text indicating that now this is just John the Evangelist's soliloquy or whatever. But, um, but actually, I, I see a lot of parallels here. The testimony of John the Baptist with, uh, with his testimony in, other, in the other Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, given what he witnessed at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Right? John the Baptist has seen Jesus. He's seen to the heart of all reality when he, saw the, when he witnessed the baptism of Jesus Christ when he, when he was, he had front row seats to the, the Holy Trinity coming in full, vivid, clear color picture um, in the baptism of Jesus Christ. And these are the themes of what he's talking about. The event of Christ's baptism isn't mentioned in this gospel, but, uh, but these are the themes that are associated with that event that John the Baptist would have seen and proclaimed in his ministry. So Jesus Christ this is what these themes amount to here in uh, that last paragraph. Jesus Christ is the most important person in the world because he's not, he's not just from this world. He's, he's God's own son come from heaven. He doesn't speak like other human beings because he's not just like other human beings. Not, he's not merely a human being. He's the God-man. He's God's own son who came from heaven and so he speaks what, uh, of what he's seen in heaven, and he reveals God. He reveals God to us because he is God. He's also a human being. He's fully human, without sin, but he's a fully human being. But he's God, and so he reveals God to us. He reveals what he's seen in heaven because he's the one who created heaven. He reveals God to sinners, to people who are predisposed in, uh, to, un to unbelief. That's what it says. People didn't receive what he had to say. Of course we didn't, because we hate God. We're, we're predisposed against him. We don't want to believe what he has to say. Right? We're resentful of the fact that, that he's the most important person in the world because he came from heaven, because he's God's own son. We don't want to listen to that guy. Right? Nevertheless, we should listen to him. We should trust him and believe in him because he speaks the very words of God. And, uh, and God the Father said at Jesus' baptism, these are the themes that we see here, <clears throat> even though we're not going verse by verse through these, 
these final verses of our passage. These are the themes. God the Father said at Jesus' baptism, I love you, son. I'm so proud of you. And he poured out all of his love upon him in the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. God himself given. God poured out. God the Father poured him out on Jesus Christ. Because I love you and I'm so proud of you. And so he poured out all of his love on him. And this is the God that's revealed to us in the life and the teachings of Jesus. This is the God that we can know. And not just know something about. We can know him. We can know him personally and intimately as Jesus pours out his own spirit upon us and lavishes us with God's love in the person of the Holy Spirit, sharing with us through our union with Jesus Christ, the bride with the bridegroom, through that union sharing with us the the same declaration and acceptance of God that he himself received. I love you, son, and I'm proud of you. Even though you didn't deserve those, you didn't earn those words. Jesus Christ shares that with you through your union with him. So that God says to you, because of Christ, I love you, son, and I'm so proud of you. That, that language is not meant to be exclusive of women. Um, that is to say, the relationship that the son has with the father, all of you, men and women, sons and daughters, are brought into that very relationship where the sonship of Jesus Christ himself is shared with you because you're united to him. And that loving word over you, I love you, I'm so proud of you, that loving word over you is your new life. That's your new home. Because of Jesus, because because he is our bridegroom and we're his bride, because we're united to him, we abide in, we live in the very love of God. That's our home. The love of God is our home. So I wrote this poem that's on the front of the bulletin, and um, it's it's probably not very good. Uh, I wanted to read it. The dragon slayer journeyed to the captive, disfigured, sleeping princess. He fell. He kissed her. He rose with her alive, beautiful, free, and brought her home to his kingdom. I partly put that in the bulletin uh, to impress you with my fantastic skills as a poet. Um, But hopefully, mostly, I put that in there to celebrate the beauty of the gospel. Because when when you think about this, Uh, When you think about Christ in these terms, the great hero has won his bride through his sacrificial love. How incongruous is it for the heralds of the kingdom, people doing Christian ministry, announcing his presence to flirt with the princess and vie for her affections? It's totally out of order. How incongruous is it for, a, for the friend of the bridegroom to seek the bride's attention for himself, to try to catch her eye? If your heart is full of this tale, though, if you really become able to appreciate the, the grand significance of the gospel of Jesus Christ for you, for yourself, as a, as a member of the church, as one of Christ's bride, 
who receives all the benefits of union with Christ. Everything that that means, if your heart is full of that tale, the true tale of the gospel, then you will be purified from seeking your own through your ministry, from, from doing ministry in order to impress others, from serving in the church in, in a whole number of variety of ways, uh, doing that to get something. You'll be free from it. You'll be content to find your rest in his all-sufficiency, in his beauty. There's no need to seek your own anymore because he's sought you out and he's saved you for a relationship that you're only just beginning to, to imagine the glory of it. Right? There's no need to seek your own anymore. He's given you God in himself. And in giving you God, he's given you all things through your relationship with Jesus Christ. So your ministry, <clears throat> your service, your, your telling people about Jesus can be just that, telling people about Jesus, right? Joyfully introducing them to the great hero of their story, the one in whom all of us may lose ourselves in the gaze of love. The cosmic romance is true, so you should rejoice at the bridegroom's voice. Everything about him declares the love of God to you for eternal life, so let your life be about him and call the attention of others to him. He must increase, but we must decrease. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, you perceive what is going on inside each one of our hearts. Um, you know it. You know us better than we know ourselves, and you love us anyway. You've given your Son to save us for a relationship. The fact that you want a relationship with people like us is, um, is hard for us to grasp, especially the more we get to know ourselves. But, um, but we pray that you would concentrate all of our attention on Jesus Christ, that we would come to know you we come to know what kind of God it is who sends his son for people like us to create a pure, spotless bride for Jesus Christ, uh, a bride, a church, a people made up of uh, people of every sort, sinners of every type, brought into your own household, brought into your own family through faith in Christ through union with Christ by your Holy Spirit, brought into a life that will last forever that's characterized by love and joy and peace. The kind of God who does this is worthy of our attention. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ and that in all of our lives, in all of our ministry, and all of our service to other people, especially as we're speaking about Jesus Christ, seeking to introduce others to Christ, that you would help us to... Um, to become less significant in and of ourselves, to, to point attention away from ourselves and not um, be glory thieves. Christ is the center of the universe, and we pray that you would help us to, to enjoy him that way and to help others to enjoy him that way as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.